Welcome back, everybody. It's hump day. You've made it halfway through the week right here on the Hitchcock Minute, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host. I'm Alan Sanders of The Wilder Ride. I am Wilder Ride co-host Walt Murray. And you and I have a different movie franchise. We're not doing Alfred Hitchcock movies, but, you know, that would have been a great one oh, to, awesome. to do. In fact, I'm glad that this is called the Hitchcock Minute. I said this early. I really hope that this is just one of many other Hitchcock collaborations to come. Me too. Well, for one thing, Hitchcock deserves as much recognition as possible. And so for all of us to be able to be fanboys with him for a little bit and uh, check out this movie, and like you said, hopefully some others, uh, he deserves the attention because he was a masterful movie maker. He was. Um, if you watch, and, and thankfully we all have YouTube or access to YouTube, there's so many snippets and interviews and documentaries and just things of behind the scenes, people breaking down scenes from all of his movies. And you look at how he thought out each of the scenes. In fact, one of his quotes that I, that I came across was he said, once I get on the set, it's almost kind of boring because I've already made the movie on paper. I already know what it's supposed to be in my head. And he said, after that, I realize I'm going to come short of whatever it was I made in my head because sure. actors don't necessarily do the performance I want. I don't get the shot I want. I don't have the budget I need. So he said, I, I've got the perfect movie. And then I show up and go, well, I'm going to have to settle for 90% of that or 80% or 70%. But I love how his way of thinking is, That he's planned with such detail, shot for shot, moment for moment, that he already knows what he wants. It's just a matter of getting the actors and the set and the crew to do what he wants. That's right. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, there are movies that you and I see that we get to the end of it and we're like, did they have a script? (laughs) What was the vision here? Did they, you know, board this out and and actually have the, the story set up? Because it doesn't seem like it. But with his, everything mattered, everything was significant, and everything was planned to the last second. One of the interviews I saw with him, because he was talking about some actors that he's worked with, or and he didn't want to, and you could tell that British in him, he didn't want to talk ill of people, specifically if they'd already passed away, because right. he'd say, but he would comment on one or two that he'd say, I knew the progression of shots. I knew if somebody was going to look up, or I was going to need them to look up because I wanted to then show what they were looking at. And if they didn't look up, it would make no sense to insert a shot of what they were looking at. We sure. have to tell the audience, the actor looked up. Now, as soon as we swing it around, we all intuitively know, oh, we're now looking up at what this actor was looking at. And he said, and there was nothing more frustrating than dealing with an actor who said, I don't know if I'd look up then. And he's like, well, mm-hmm. but no, you would. <laughs> he's like, Cause, because that is how you are going to do the part. And he said sometimes the method actors were the hardest to deal with because he called them little children. He said, oh, they love wow. to explore and play and do all this kind of stuff and think, oh, look how creative I am. Well, that's great. You're like beating on a box thinking it's a drum. I'm here to make a movie and I need you to do what I'm telling you to do. And it was kind of an interesting way of approaching character because he wanted trained almost theater actors that were used to doing exactly the same thing every time. And he loved working with people like Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant because they would follow what he wanted them to do. And then they brought that sort of maturity of their character and, and, and who they were to their roles, but they also followed direction. Well, I think you kind of go both ways. I, I, I go both ways on that, that. Do you really? Should I? Uh, <laughs> do, I need to, that. do I need to tell somebody? Uh, do we need to put a note out? Well, you know. <laughs> We all you have see it things, from both right? sides. <laughs> see it from both sides. There we go. Because 
you see some of the actors that what they bring to their character is astounding and and really makes that character. I think of like Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Oh, same actor. If you don't have him <laughs> playing that part, it's not the same character. But it's a lot of that is because of the gravitas that he brings to the character. Well, I mean, there there is a there is room in certain instances when you're making a different kind of movie, or you've got a different kind of flow or format or whatever you're trying to tell of having actors sort of just wing it scene to scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pete, Bill Murray and Alfred Hitchcock would never work together oh gosh, if, 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 they, if they had come across, because Bill Murray would never give the same line twice. Right. Hitchcock would go mad. He would fire him in the day. He, because in Hitchcock's mind, like I said, in his mind, he's already made his movie. So he needs you to do what he already put down on paper. You're not right. going to come up with something better. He's got what he wants. You just have to do it. Right. But then you look at Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters would not be what it is if Bill Murray wasn't being Bill Murray. 100% agree. 1,000% agree. And I think you just have to know, well, what kind of filmmaker are you dealing with? So I, I, this way, if Hitchcock were still alive making movies, I would be thrilled to just be in a Hitchcock picture. Oh, yeah. I'd still be just as thrilled being in a Spielberg picture, knowing that I've got a little more latitude to kind of play around and try things because I trust... He's going to f- go, oh, I kind of like that. Let's just go with that and try that. Let's just do it again that way. Right. He's very open to actors where the more traditional <laughs> grew up in the that the silent era of almost German style of filmmaking at when Hitchcock came out of England and came to America, realizing I've kind of hit the peak of where I'm going to be in England. If I really want to make like big, big movies, I need to move to the United States. Mm-hmm. He was a very rigid, old school kind of classic filmmaker. And you had to have a different style of actor. Right. Well, and I I like, I think if I were an actor, I would love to work with people like J.J. Abrams because the day I was on the set with him is mostly extras all day long. Uh, there were a few other, other scenes, but mostly extras. And there were a couple times J.J. Abrams actually asked the extra what they were thinking. And then when they told him, he was like, yeah, yeah, do that, but do it over here, you know, so that we can get it in the, in the frame better or whatever. So it's interesting to see how people approach it differently. And it has to be done by their personality because it won't work otherwise. You know, it's weird is the stuff that I do and the films I've shot or the, the videos I've made, uh, which are more corporate style, but still I'm kind of in the middle. I very much, because I used to be an actor first, that's where I started before I ever directed anything. So I appreciate when an actor is at least given the latitude to say, well, here's what I'm thinking. Right. So as a director, I've always been open, whether it's a stage play, whether it's a film, whether it's video, whatever, I'm always open. But at some, at some point, I also had the vision I have on paper. We've done our work too. I believe, I wholly believe in pre-production because it's a lot cheaper to make edits on paper than oh, in the yeah. editing room after you've already filmed and go, sure. Oh, we forgot something. We got to get the set back up. We got to get all the extras back. We got to set it all back. That's a lot of money. Yeah. No, you. So if I've already kind of thought something out, I'll give you some latitude to give me some thoughts. But sometimes you have to be able to say, well, I appreciate that. But for this particular scene, I need you to do it this way. Right. Right. And so I tend to kind of waffle between these two because I understand the pre-production piece. It's important. Well, and I think it's that way with any manager in any business that y- you you go between looking at your employees as a bundle of carbon that needs to do a job <laughs> and saying, oh, wait, this is a, this is a human being with creative, uh, you know, creative abilities who needs to do the job, but they need to do the job in a way that fits them. And they may do the job better than I tell them to. True. 
And so at the end of the day, it's we got to get we got to get this job done with everybody coordinated together working on it. And how, how do you do that best? And I think each director comes at it in, in, in a bit different way. I've always heard of it as and, I, and that's why I say I kind of walk between the two. You've got directors who think of themselves as acting directors. They care about the performance and the actors and all the technical stuff they leave to other people. And then you've got the directors like a Hitchcock who think of actors as nothing more than biological props. Mm-hmm. I could put a plant here. I could put you here, but you're going to do whatever I say you're going to do. If, I, if the plant needs to look up, the plant's looking up. You are a biological prop. Right. And that's how he thinks of it. And for the actor, fantastic. Put me in there. I'll stand there because I want my face on screen. <laughs> so, Well, some actors are okay with that. Say, you tell me what you want, I'll give it to you. Right. And the actor may walk away like Cary Grant a third of the way through said, I have no idea what we're doing in this movie. Didn't matter. He trusted Car- he, he trusted Hitchcock and Hitchcock loved it. He loved the fact that the main character shouldn't know what was happening to him because at the point in the movie, he, he doesn't. Right. Well, and how many times? Because I I did this, and I'm I'm weird, so I I don't know if anybody else does. No this, argument. But like, <laughs> but when I left the set of Star Trek, I had you know I was just an extra guy in the crowd. Over the next couple of years, joking around with my friends, I kind of came up with a backstory <laughs> for my knucklehead, you know. <laughs> man in the crowd character, <laughs> but I didn't even think about it that day. I was like, well, I just want to be where I'm supposed to be and not hurt anybody. And I don't want to break any equipment. Right. Those were my goals that day. And <laughs> don't want to break anything, including people, yeah, including people. <laughs> Nobody goes to the hospital because of me. And JJ doesn't go, that thing cost me $400,000. Do you realize we just wasted an entire day of shooting? <laughs> Yeah, get him off my not set. What I wanted, <laughs> so I, I wanted to either not be remembered or be remembered pleasantly. <laughs> so, but then later on, it's like, well, that guy could have been this, and you know, that guy could have been that, and um, I, I think that that probably is, in some ways, what a director wants you to do is, you know, that it's a, a living human being who they're filming, but he's doing what he needs to do, right, and. It would be inappropriate for me to go, hey, look, I'm going to go kind of give a little flyer on this and I'm going to come out in clown shoes. <laughs> well, that's not really what they need. No, you know? no. I appreciate your but creative if you put input. A little extra energy into it and, you know, whatever. So, uh, anyway, I don't know how we got on that rabbit trail. But, no, it's all right. Uh, because we're getting uh, ready to continue our car scene that we left yesterday. And it makes me wonder if the two. Right, we're uh, not even in the minute yet. <laughs> if the two henchmen were told by Hitchcock. You are looking solely out the window. You are trying not to make eye contact ever because they they're not they're almost robotic in the car. Right. And they're kind of exactly what we're talking about. Like their job is not to go have a discussion with him. Their job is not to get any information out of him. Right. Their job is to go get him and bring him here. Yeah, there's there's no improvisation taking place in these scenes. No. He's not out, you know, if anybody, it would be uh, Roger Thornhill, but I'm pretty sure Cary Grant was doing the lines as written. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's remind everybody where we are. We are in the car. And when we last left on Tuesday, uh, the scene ended mid-sentence with Roger Thornhill saying, I mean, uh, couldn't we stop off at a drugstore for a moment so that, and we continued this today with, I can explain I'm being kidnapped, and we're going to end with the Cadillac pulling up into the front steps of a home of what I would call a very well-to-do family, and I think using the words palatial estate is not too far removed no, from what I we're think seeing. that's very fair. That's very fair. 
All right, so let's just go ahead and dive into it. I do think it's a very funny line when you couple it, if we hadn't broken from yesterday to today. I mean, uh, couldn't we stop off at a drugstore for a moment so that I could explain I'm being uh, kidnapped? Well, that is what's happening, isn't it? That's exactly what you want. Oh, kidnapping. Oh, hey, you're absolutely right. We should probably let them know. Yeah, yeah. Give your mom a call. <laughs> let her know you've been kidnapped. We'll have you back by eight. May not be home for a while. I'm being held at gunpoint. <laughs> right. Don't wait up. Two thugs who won't give you any other information have me in a car. And yeah, and this is somewhere between, I think, him just being a wise ass and him kind of playing them and going, okay, what is this all about? You know, right. where where is this going? And trying to kind of fish for information from them. And he tries to press it. After saying that, he leans forward to, to the guy who's refusing to make eye contact with him. And he says, well, that is what's happening, isn't it? And Valerian is just, nope, my, my specific direction from Mr. Hitchcock were do not eye, make eye contact and do not engage. Just sit here. Just be a, uh, almost in, this is almost worse when they're not even acknowledging him. This is worse. And he just doesn't even know what to do. I like when he feels like, okay, you're not going to look at me. You're not going to look at me. You're not going to answer me. Maybe you're not paying attention to me. Fine. I'm going to go for the door. Oops. Yeah. Not, not a wise move. Well, I mean, it makes sense, but. (sighs) Well, and this also kind of goes back to what I was saying yesterday. They didn't check him for a weapon. At some point, he's going to get desperate and make a desperate move to try to get away. Mm -hmm. If he's got a weapon on him, he's going for that weapon. And they really should have checked him for uh, for a gun or something. No, and I don't know enough about the Cadillac of this era. Did they have child safety locks on the back door that you couldn't pull the lock up? I don't know. I would doubt it. Because he tries to pull the little pin. Remember older cars, you saw the little pin you mm-hmm. could actually pull up to unlock yeah. the door. And everything was manual. Right. So how how is he not able to unlock the door? I'm betting they had to modify it somehow. It must be. So a pre-Cold War edition of child safety locks. Yes. Or maybe they, I don't think there's a police edition of a lim, limousine, but um, maybe they use the same locking system that police cars have. All right. So I'm going to leave this here today, Wednesday, for when we get to it later in the week. Does the person in the back seat open the door from the inside or does somebody open it from the outside? Same question I had. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see how that wor- how that rolls. Because yeah. right now, this does feel goofy. What it should be is he's able to open the door a crack and the guy shoves him back in the middle and goes, don't try that again. Right. The fact is, he can't even get it to open, sits back in his seat slowly and says, locked. Hey, there you go. Captain Obvious. Nice. Yeah, good job. You figured that out for yourself, did you? You're a scientist, I, I assume. <laughs> Yep. Uh, he doesn't get a response. In fact, what I think is really weird with whatever direction, this is where I think that sort of biological prop uh, mentality starts to not work in little moments because the main guy, Valerian, still off to the side, never once even looked at him trying to escape. Mm-mm. So his, here here comes Cary Grant, you know, sitting back between him saying, locked. It's, it's like he never even moved in the first place. It's a little weird. Yeah. I, I kind of wondered if... That was supposed to supposed to send us the message that this isn't the first time these guys have done something like this. Like, they're old hats. They know he's going to go for the door. He's not going to be able to get out. It's a futile effort, but we're going to sit here and be what we need to be. Now, if you pay attention, Licked, even though he's got his head sort of looking out the window, his eyes do cut across at yeah. Cary Grant. He's kind of like, what are you trying to do? What you talking about, Willis? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But he then goes back to looking out the window as if he's supposed to. The other guy never even acknowledges the movement, the attempted escape. 
Maybe maybe he took something. He may have. <laughs> they, they just put a cement prop of him in there. He's definitely like he's almost catatonic the way he's yeah. not reacting to Roger Thornhill's attempt at escape. Well, then we get the dissolve, and now we're sort of on what looks like we're not in the city anymore. We ain't in Kansas anymore. We're at Pete Townsend's house. We're at Pete. Maybe that's who it is. <laughs> he's he's got the money. Yeah, uh, but we are. We 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 see the car turning into a a drive of some kind. There's a wrought iron sign with the words Townsend written in a, a large block capital letters. And actually, it looks like the marquee signs you would see for like a movie theater, almost like yeah. there's like little raised um, circles on, on each letter, like three across the top for the T and then three more down. And I almost wonder, is it just for pattern or is it lighted? We can't tell because it's daylight. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I don't know if they would have electricity running to the sign, but it does seem like almost like a theater marquee sign rather than your welcome to the home of Townsend. Yeah. Uh, the gate is amazing. It is. I mean, this is like you're entering the Lord, you know, the the, the realm of Mordor, kind of like Re- yeah. Lord of the Rings gate. Well, it's that this- old style Hollywood mansion kind of gate. Yeah, it's uh, got a lot of greenery around the outside to block you the view of wherever estate in the mm-hmm. estate is probably set pretty far back off the main road. This is not this is not your typical two or three hundred foot driveway entrance. No. Uh, this is I get is probably more like a half mile driveway. Yeah, it's long. Well, even the fact that we have about 40 seconds of driving in this scene um, gives us that sense of this is way up there and this is a long ride out. And when he's been kidnapped and he doesn't know what's going on, this had to seem like two hours from gate to to house. So uh, it's an interesting way that they shot this minute. Um, because that is a long time for no dialogue and no real action other than just driving and showing the house. Now, anybody who's listening, if you want to engage us on social media at the Hitchcock Minute or the Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook, I couldn't find if this was, let's say, a, a known cemetery gate opening or of some some real estate, you know, where this came from. But uh, it almost looks like it must have been not necessarily a, a private home. At least my thought was because you see these two almost cement poured pillars. They're not very tall, maybe about the hi- height of a bumper in front of each of the two towers that make up the uh, arched wrought iron gateway to enter the, the estate. Almost as if those were there to keep you from accidentally hitting the wrought iron. Like right. the protective little uh, pylons Yeah, of some kind of kind. buffer pylons. Yeah. So I was wondering if this was maybe an entrance to it. Because it looks like this gate looks like it would be the entrance to a cemetery or some kind of an old churchyard. You know, um, it just for some reason comes across that way to me. It definitely does not look like a house. It's a, it's, it's a magnificent gateway. Uh, they, they enter in through that gate. And uh, as we see them back in the car... He makes the comment about it. He sees the sign. He says, so who's Townsend? Doesn't get a response, as is typical. I do love this continued sort of snarky, smarmy di- tone of Thornhill, because he says, Really? Interesting. As if he had answered him. <laughs> okay, so this was filmed at Old Westbury Gardens, Old Westbury, New York, in right near New York City, um, at 71 Old Westbury Road. Oh, good. You found it. Uh, it is the former estate of John Schaefer Phillips, who uh, died in 1958, heir to a U.S. steel fortune in Nassau County, New York. Oh, wow. Okay, so this was the outside of an actual home. Yeah, and if he's got U.S. steel money, he could afford quite a house. Explains all the wrought iron work around yeah, his house. Sure does. <laughs> sure does. So, um, yeah, so that makes sense. That would make sense that that would be his house. 
All right, so we're we're going up the driveway. Nobody wants to answer him about uh, about the who's Townsend. Uh, and again, I I love his little sarcastic. Oh, really interesting. Thornhill spies the Townsend mansion in the distance, and you are a good ways off when he realizes how far back that estate is set from the main gate. Yeah, absolutely. It is way, 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 way back. Uh, the drive curls all the way around. We go through trees, and uh, it's almost like tree-lined driveway. And we do get one shot as it's coming around. We get to see sort of the front of the house and realize it's got uh, a little bit of a side wing area where maybe that's a sitting parlor area. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other side looks like it's a one story that continues on, maybe servants' quarters. But the main home is at least a two story, depending on if they've got any that there's decorative, you know, uh, windows in the in the ceiling and at the excuse me at the roof line. So I don't know if there's a three-story in here, but it's definitely a very large two-story mansion. It's nice. It is very nice. At least three different fire chimneys showing up, uh, one on one side of the house, two on the other for different fireplaces, perhaps one in a kitchen slash servant's area, the other one for bedroom or Mm -hmm. living room, parlor, again, entertaining area. Yep, there's probably some, uh, you know, an office and, um, yeah, it's... so. If you get kidnapped and you get dumped behind Kmart, um, that's one thing. But if you get kidnapped and you get brought here, this really has to bring a lot of questions to mind. That You know what? That's a great point to talk about for a minute. What is now going through his mind? Because you've got these two guys that are nicely dressed that met him at the Plaza Hotel. They're driving in a Cadillac. They show up at some palatial estate where they're pulling up to the front door of what is basically a modern mansion. Yeah. Who the heck is kidnapping you? Yeah, I just got kidnapped by Ted Turner or, you know, some other crazy rich person. You know, my first instinct will be something that I think Cary Grant gets to later is you've got me mixed up with someone else. You've yeah. got, you know what? I was just in the wrong place. You, you, I must look like somebody you think you're, you're, you've got, but I'm not who you think I am. Well, you half expect that when they pull in and you see Townsend, that he'd be like, oh, Townsend. Yeah, now I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I... Townsend and I had this big dispute going or, you know, he's a competitor of mine or something, you know, like that should ring a bell and make him understand who it is. But let's keep in mind, the main bad guy's name is not Townsend. Right. (laughs) Well, yes. But you would you would expect that if he was who they thought he was and. But would he know Townsend then? Maybe, maybe not. Because we find out, I mean, again, spoilers, we find out that this is this is the Townsend estate. But these people have nothing to do with Townsend. And I don't know how it is in New York, but in Atlanta, where where we live and uh, and record, we kind of know who the richest people around Atlanta are. I mean, we at least have them on, kind of on our radar because we hear about them on the news. And um, compared to a place like New York, there aren't as many mansions and stuff. But um, maybe there are so many rich people around that... It wouldn't ring any bells. Yeah, I, I would argue that in the New York area, with as many people live in and around there, as many people have made their fortunes, whether it's in commodities, stock, trade, uh, inheritance, inheritance, obviously, uh, even film and television, big, big in New York. Yeah, you're not going to know everybody yeah. if you're not in that inner circle already. And it, it, to me, it, it, to me, the fact that he doesn't know who Townsend is means he may be a successful ad exec, but he's not up at that level. Yeah, and even with us reading off who whose house that was. We didn't know who it was until we said U.S. Steel. Right. So, um, but if he if he really was who they thought he was, you would have expected him to, like, the bell to ring and go, oh, yeah, got it. Now I know what I'm up against. But he has no idea. Yeah. 
now I'm as a movie watcher because I already know they've got him mistaken for someone else because I was paying attention. I'm still trying to figure out, okay, but but who's kidnapping him? Who is it that lives here? You Somebody's got this much money, you can't just pick up the phone and just say, hey, I'd like to talk to you? Okay, so in a case of mistaken identity, and in a movie with a case of mistaken identity, you already know that there's a curveball being thrown at you. So do you really know that that's not him? Like, you know, now you're kind of open to anything. So you can assume some things. But you also know that that rug may get pulled out from under you. So my thinking initially was, is he really a spy who's just saying that he's not the right guy until I got, you know, until we got 10 or 15 minutes further along. And I Hmm. was like, yeah, he really is just kind of the wrong guy. Yeah, I. I never I never thought of it that way, but I could see where you could make that point. And there's been other movies who have done that sure. where the irony is the guy who we think is being mistaken for the person is actually the person or maybe in some ways is a completely different person, but is being found out not because they thought they were person two, but they turned out they were person three. Right. Right. So you always kind of want to keep your options open and, um, you know, kind of the fool me once. Wasn't that the, the, the premise of the plot for No Way Out? Yes. Where they were investigating who's the Russian mole, yes. and it turns out that the investigator was actually the Russian mole. That's right, but never let on the whole time. Yeah, that was a crazy. That was a crazy movie. Well, and we we just had that, and of course it'll it'll be well past the spoiler uh, uh, time period by the time this comes out. But we had that in the Star Star Wars movie that we didn't know who the mole was, didn't know who the mole was, and then we finally found out. And I was kind of surprised. I didn't think that was. Can I tell you, that was one of the things that as one of my major grievances. If I could nail my, my list of grievances to the door of JJ Abrams house to say, here's what you did wrong with star Wars. That was one of them making, making the, the mole be the individual who it was. Yeah. Um, it was dumb. I was, I kind of wondered if that went a thumb in the eye to the previous director. Uh, it's just dumb. <laughs> it's just dumb. But that is a, a discussion for another time. Another time, but it was podcast. dumb. It, it was it was kind of dumb. I, I it was definitely done solely for shock value. Yeah, for people like I didn't see that coming. But then you go back and look, and there's nothing at all that no. supports it. Mm-hmm. Not any, not one iota. And to me, it wasn't even a shock. It was just kind of like, oh, oh, that's kind of a surprise. No, um, just because I didn't, like I said. I didn't see it coming. Well, no, because it was dumb. He yeah. could have he could have made BB-8 be the mole for all we know. Right. And be like, well, wait a minute, you've been the mole this whole oh, what? Yeah, a shock value solely for just picking a character you weren't expecting. But there's nothing that supports. And I don't it. think they developed him enough as a character to. And well, okay, anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we have an entire podcast of my <laughs> list of grievances with Last Skywalker or the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Well, in, okay. <laughs> All right, let's get back to this because actually we are at the very end of the minute because as we see the car pull up, uh, it's coming to a stop, but it doesn't come to a full stop when we are done with the minute. So the car is just about ready to start park in front of some uh, cement stairways, uh, uh, cement steps, outdoor steps leading into the front door of this home. Yeah, so we are definitely uh, left here with the same questions if, uh, that our hero has of what the heck's going on here. What is going on? All right, uh, we are done with minute number eight as far as what's in this minute, but uh, you've had notes there you've been going through. Is there anything you want to circle back around to or anything we didn't quite cover the way you wanted to? No, no, not a whole lot of dialogue in this minute, but uh, I think we've covered it pretty well. Now, it's very interesting, again, the, the the notion we talked about I mean, at the very beginning of the minute about how Hitchcock liked actors to do very specific things. And it looks as though his two henchmen here were very much following to the letter 
Don't make eye contact. Mm-hmm. Look away. Don't acknowledge. There's not even the sense of, okay, I hear you, where we can tell by body language. They're like, nope, I'm just going to stare. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, to me, that's actually a little weak. There should be moments where there's that w- desire to want to make a you know, comment and then not. And I'd be at least you're listening. At mm-hmm. least they're engaged. But talk about not being present. They're acting like they're not even in the car. They're right. Like, do, do, do. I'm somewhere else. Did I leave the iron plugged in? Right. <laughs> what am I having for dinner? What's for dinner tonight? I wonder what Townsend's going to make. Or uh, Van Damme, as we're going to find out. Yes. So, yeah, but um, not a ton of, uh, you know, no plot twists or anything in this minute. So just uh, leading up to some reveals, I guess. All right. We, you, you and I still have a couple of minutes left to be part of this uh, this project, and then we are going to be done and in the books, sitting back, listening to everybody else. I'm going to give a, a plug on the Friday episode as our last one of all the different movies by minutes to follow. But for now, if folks like how we kind of approach a movie and they want to learn a little bit more about our podcast, where can they go? You can go to uh, our website, probably the best place to find everything, thewilderride.com. And we have uh, links to all of our social media, all of our past episodes, and future projects there. So you definitely want to check that out. Uh, also, we've got a couple of interviews there that you, you might be interested in. We uh, we covered Christmas Vacation last year, and uh, Beverly D'Angelo was gracious enough to come on board and, and spend some time with us and gave us about an hour and a half of her time. Uh, talked about uh, Christmas Vacation, how she got linked up with that whole crew, and uh, even probably some things that have never been shared in any other interview anywhere else in the world. And uh, so that was fun. And then also we had the just a great, great guy, Burton Gilliam, who played Lyle in Blazing Saddles. Uh, he sat down with us for two hours and uh, talked everything from uh, his Golden Glove boxing days up to his days as a firefighter, how he was discovered by Mel Brooks and uh, his whole experience with uh, Hollywood in general, uh, his time on the set of Fletch. Um and his experiences with Chevy Chase. So just a whole wide range of stuff in addition to his uh, time with Blazing Saddles. So uh, those might be a couple things you want to check out too, because those were just two great interviews. I I really appreciate both of them coming on with us, and I think you would enjoy hearing that. So you can find that on our website or on on any podcatcher where you would normally listen to podcasts. You'll find us as The Wilder Ride. Excellent. And, of course, here at the Hitchcock Minute, we are on – Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Play, we're on a lot of other podcatchers that actually feed off of those RSS feeds, so check your podcatcher of choice. You can also go to HitchcockMinute.com to learn more. And uh, if you were, if you like to engage via social media and, and talk to some of the hosts and, and, and engage about this movie because it may be one of your favorites, we've got a couple of places you can go to on Facebook. Look for The Man on Washington's Nose page. Like that, follow it, be part of it. And then you've got on Twitter, the Hitchcock Minute. So it's at Hitchcock Minute on Twitter. So come on back tomorrow, a Thursday edition, as we continue on what's happening here. In minute number nine, we'll start with the Cadillac coming to a full stop in front of the mansion. And we're going to end with Thornhill saying, oh, don't worry, I'll catch up on my reading. As he's left in a room with lots and lots of bookshelves, almost like a library off the main hall of this mansion. And to find out what happens in between all of that, you've got to come back tomorrow for this, the Hitchcock Minute. Yeah, so Pete Townsend's coming up here soon, right? <laughs> it's an imminence front. <laughs>
It's a put on. It's a put on. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly what's it's happening here. Oh my it's a put on. It all makes sense now. <laughs> I get it. No wonder what they were smoking. They were watching this movie. Pete Townsend goes, "Well, that's my name." People are going to be wondering what we're smoking. What are you? <laughs> and it's all been a put on. It's an eminence front. It's put on. Bye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.